we don't see ourselves when you come to island elevator i tell them that nothing that you'll do here at island elevator nobody either succeeds on their own or fails on their own it's a group thing and we hunt in packs so we want to be able to attack any single problem from 12 different angles and it doesn't matter how big the goal is that you got another thing that i say all the time is how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time that's how we do things so we want to try to think big we want to come at it like a group, like a pack of hyenas, and then take that down one bite at a time. But the acknowledgement is that, and this is something that some entrepreneurs struggle with, some business owners struggle with, especially these, you know, these bean counters that come directly out of these Ivy League universities. They think that the entire company is run off of a, a freaking spreadsheet. And guess what? It's not. The spreadsheet has never, under any circumstances, helped a customer with a problem. It just doesn't. It might help me with a problem so I can organize my numbers. It might help you with a problem because you don't understand where the percentage of things are going. But the customer, unless you're selling spreadsheets or a spreadsheet service to the customer, it's not doing anything for them. The thing that's going to help the customer, and there is no such thing as business unless you're solving a problem. If you're not solving a problem, you are not in business. Welcome to the Skill Stadium. A podcast for the skilled trades. Where you can learn about the opportunities and benefits of working in the skilled trades from business owners, hiring managers, and the hardworking, talented professionals. And now, your host, Keith Williams. Welcome to the Skill Stadium Podcast Episode 109. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Keith Williams. Every week we feature professionals in the skilled trades, business owners, educators, giving real world advice. I have three requests. If you enjoyed the podcast and it brought you value, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star rating and write a review. My guest today is a fourth generation elevator technician, U.S. Army veteran, had no interest in being in the elevator industry. I find that very interesting, but he needed a job. So when he got out of the Army in February 2001, his grandfather got him hooked up with a job with Tyson Company. And that's obviously after he finished his training. Then he took over the reins of his father's company, Island Elevator, in 2016. His company has a strong culture that believes in people first, and you will see this message on his website and his social media. Please welcome Chris, the president of Island Elevator. Chris, please uh, help me pronounce your last name so I can do a proper finishing off of the introduction. It's Chris Gutkus. And I know that uh, people get a little, you know, it gets like weird in the mouth or something like that, but... As long as you get the G in there, it's okay. Everybody watches it. Not a big deal. I appreciate it, Chris. I appreciate it. Chris, one of the things I got to say that really impressed me about you is that you have a strong online presence, which makes it easy for people to learn about you. And I wish more people in your industry would understand the value of that because you and I connected on LinkedIn. Can you tell me how and why you decided to embrace building that online presence? Because a lot of people in your industry, I'm sure you're aware of, are not doing what you're doing. And I think they're leaving money on the table and opportunities on the table. They're just... So talk to me about that. Why Why did you decide to take this uh, path? Well, to understand why I started doing it is to understand where I started with the company. In 2016, before I took over, I was basically shotgun president because my old man had passed away suddenly. So I went from being a highly skilled field technician into being a business person. I didn't know what a business person was. So I had to go out and I got to I'm always striving to be a little bit better every single day. So I'm better today than I was yesterday, but not as good as I'm going to be tomorrow. And I was understanding at this point that I'm going to have to learn a completely different skill set in order to be effective at this job and properly support the people that rely on this company for a living. So I have to be better. There's no choice there. So I went through a little bit of a schooling through the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program. It was like a shotgun understanding to all the different modules and components as they pertain to running a business, trying to really change that mindset so that I can be more of an asset to the company. You know, I don't think of it as my company. I think of it as our company. And this is my role in our company. Somebody has to do it. I'm going to do it. So if I'm going to do it, it's just in my brain. I have to do it to the best of my possible ability. May not be as good as everybody else, but I have to be better than I am right now. 
So as I'm going through and I'm learning a lot of the basics when it comes to business, process development, understanding financials, the big picture, getting, you know, pulling back, seeing things at 10,000 feet. And as I continue to progress through these different skill sets that I'm starting to pick up, I'm finally getting to the point where I'm feeling comfortable with this. Now I'm moving on to that. I'm feeling comfortable with this, moving on to that. So about a year and a half ago, actually, the, the idea kind of germinated during COVID because all of a sudden we were very busy, then we weren't very busy. So it's not like you can just sit there and do nothing. You've got to start thinking about what the next step is right away, because guess what? Everybody else in the industry is thinking about what the next step is. So I'm not going to get left behind. I got to continue to make sure that I'm thinking forward and started to put together the ideas and the concepts between a well-defined and articulated sales philosophy. You know, I was basically just kind of running things reactionary, uh, reflexing, you know, I, I, I'm in the moment and I happen to be successful, but I wouldn't be able to convey what I did properly to somebody else. So, and if I can't do that, then I can't build a team that's working in the same fashion that everything was built and developed up until this point. So now I need to be able to be more granular in how it is that I'm describing what it means to be at Island Elevator, how we sell things at Island Elevator. And then as we started to continue to develop through that, we got to the part about marketing, excuse me. So marketing is something that I only understood based on somebody else talking about it. I, I always understood marketing and sales and advertising to all basically be the same thing. Obviously I was wildly <laughs> And the more that I got into it, the more that I dove deeper, my process is that I learn from people that are smarter than me. I, I never want to be the smartest person. Otherwise, it's a lost opportunity. So there wasn't a lot of, say, I'm not like super in love with workshops because I can't really vet the person that's teaching me this information. So I don't really understand whether or not that's good information to consume. I'm always checking my information, see multiple sources, try to make sure that this is something that's actionable. Sure. So I did what basically everybody else does these days. And I went on YouTube and, and YouTube, I started to, you know, uh, I was learning about leadership skills. So I said, let me try to apply this to marketing and sales, negotiation and business development. So what I had found was Chris Doe from the future, listening to some of his podcasts. And he was talking about marketing and how to position yourself, how to identify a market, how to communicate to the market. Then he kind of led me over to Seth Godin, another big name in uh, marketing philosophy, understanding big level, high level, 50,000 foot development of what marketing actually is. I'm listening to his uh, book on uh, his audio book that he read. It's called This Is Marketing. It's on YouTube. You just grabbed it and started listening to that. And then obviously Gary Vee and some of the other big names, how they were talking about it's important to make sure that you get lots of touches. Yes. There's another concept that I had picked up where people don't actually commit to forming this relationship with you unless they trust you. They can't trust you unless they have a certain amount of anecdotal experience with you. That experience, they say, starts somewhere around seven hours. So you start to build trust after you feel like you know somebody for seven hours. How do I get people to know me over the course of seven hours without actually sitting down with them. That's when I started to explore and understand and experiment because it's really more of an experiment than anything else with social media marketing, brand building, personal brand, company brand, all of these things. And what it comes down to is being having a well-defined philosophy and a well-defined message. And that's easy if you're passionate about something. So I'm very passionate about elevators, leadership, training, giving people opportunities, it's something that I really, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Elevator, what I always tell everybody is that what we believe our core values are what we bring into the world. Elevators and the elevator industry is just the conduit. Yes. The people first centric, providing opportunities, training, helping people to reach their full potential. Mm -hmm. All of them, it wouldn't matter if we were selling hot dogs or car insurance, we were the same exact way. Yes. It's just... Because we build off of what we stand on. I mean, I've been around for 44 years. If you don't understand who you are now, then it's time to start figuring it out. And then once you get to that point, 
what you'll find is that you can set these absurd goals and the decisions that you make in between to get to that goal are very easy because all I'm doing is leaning back on what I know as being natural progression of thought and, and it just all falls back on my core values. And that's something that I kind of learned from Simon Sinek as he talks about why and he talks about, you know, making decisions are a lot easier when you understand who you actually are and where you want to go from here. And then everything else is just kind of like a, it's in the periphery. It's a side view. So I digress. The first question was about brand building and social media marketing. So when I first started out, there's a lot of advice. There's a lot of uh, ideas that are coming out from you. So I kind of cherry pick the ideas that I feel like I can use and apply an action towards right away. So Chris Doe mentioned that you want to make sure that you have a clear message. Seth Godin said that you want to make sure that you are speaking directly to your market. So you have to identify the market first. And then Gary V was just like quantity, 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 quantity. You got to pump it out. You got to be constantly tapping it. Be careful. Gary V also wants quality. He wants, he wants everything, right? he wants literally, <laughs> which yes, is fantastic for him. Yeah. But when you're starting out, you don't really know. And now I concept about people start to build trust once they feel like they know you for a, around seven hours. So how do I get to seven hours, especially since you're only getting to know me anywhere between 30 and say 75 seconds at a time? I've got to, I've got to have a consistent message. And then I've got to be able to produce content on a regular basis so that as you're building this up 60 seconds, 120 seconds at a time, you're starting to get to know me. But those little content pops, which is essentially what social media is, it's happening multiple times. So we'll say that if, if you can, if I can capture your attention for 60 seconds to 120 seconds on each post, and I'm doing two posts a day, we're talking about upwards of four minutes a day, seven days a week, that's 28 minutes, that's a half an hour a week. That means that I have to be able to capture your attention upwards of two minutes, twice a day, every day of the week for 14 weeks. Wow. I also wonder if I could just jump in for a sec. Also wonder, I want to ask you this, what platforms are you on? Because I do believe the platforms that you are focusing on will make a difference. So like if you're on TikTok or YouTube shorts, just think about how you consume information. And I'm not sure if you're doing that. I know you're on LinkedIn, but I'm throwing this at you. Are you going to some of these other platforms like TikTok, YouTube shorts? Because you can multiply that if you're on platforms that get more attention that people consume more from. So I'm just curious, just asking. It's something that I've considered, but one thing to understand about me is that I'm basically a one-man show. I'm creating the content, I'm putting it out. I'm also running a business on the side. I'm learning how to run a business while I'm running a business. So I have to be able to put myself in a position where I can be most effective without it completely sucking me in and diverting me from my other responsibilities. So what I decided to do is I said, I have to do something on the social media marketing and the brand building and the personal brand building. So I just went for one platform. It was LinkedIn. Everybody told me business to business and I'm a business to business guy. If I were, I'm in a, a CEO group called Vistage with a, a bunch of other company owners, entrepreneurs, and they, there's one there that's a backpack company and they would go more through YouTube and TikTok primarily because their market is, is consuming right. through those platforms. Me personally, I know that the TikTok thing is good. I'm just really suspicious about the whole Chinese ownership of all of the data. It makes me a little uncomfortable. Although it's kind of naive because it's not like the US owned companies are super responsible with my data either. So <laughs> I'm in that like weird conflict. But more importantly is the fact that I would love to be able to just blast out all of these marketing ideas that I had. Like if I had the budget for it, I would be hiring a marketing team just to pump out YouTube, just everybody, everywhere, somebody's going to hear about Island Elevator, somebody's going to need us. Yeah, and most of your clients, I would say, are our businesses. I mean, that that primarily is your marketplace. So that does make sense, what you're saying. Unless you want to market to their kids, <laughs> probably not, then yeah. I don't I, care. I'll point. market to people's kids because at some point, mom and dad are in the elevator. 
I want that kid to be like, oh, is this an island elevator? So there's, there's, you don't have to necessarily hit the decision maker right on the head if you can get into their social circle somehow. So when I'm trying to make connections and one of our part of my market is property managers. Now we only service Long Island. So we don't even go in, into the city. We don't go into the five boroughs at all. We're just in Nassau and Suffolk County on Long Island. So there's some, yeah, it's a very niche market again. So if you go ahead and get, and I want to try to reach a property management group, I don't just stop at the property managers. I will try to connect with the billing managers. I'll try to connect with the stock guy. I'll try to connect with anybody so that if three people are sitting in a room and one person happens to mention it, it's been proven that humans will be more apt to take a recommendation from somebody that they trust and use that person. So now I get to Keith and Keith likes me, but Keith's not a decision maker. He can't do anything for me. But if Keith turns around and tells the property manager while they're in the lunchroom, hey, what about Island Elevator? Right away, that's a stronger bond and recommendation than anything that I could produce that they consume on, on social media anyway. So there's, it's- Yeah, it's you have to have advocates. You have advocates for you. That makes sense. You definitely have advocates for you. Talk to me about- you know, one of the things, one of your mantras that I've heard you say is that you can't do anything without other people. You can't, you know, you can do so much on your own. Talk to me about the culture of your company, because I think that that is so important for people to know, particularly if you have people who are listening who might want to come and work for you. I can tell you that there's plenty of people that want to come work for Island Elevator, but I can also tell you that not everybody can. Unfortunately, there's a certain culture that needs to be adhered to in order for us to be successful as a group. Because we don't see ourselves, when you come to Island Elevator, I tell them that nothing in nothing that you'll do here at Island Elevator, nobody either succeeds on their own or fails on their own. It's a group thing. We And we hunt in packs. So we want to be able to attack any single problem from 12 different angles. And, you know, and it doesn't matter how big the goal is that you got another thing that I say all the time is how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? That's how we do things. So we want to try to think big. We want to come at it like a group, like a pack of hyenas, and then take that down one bite at a time. So what the, but the acknowledgement is that, and this is something that some entrepreneurs struggle with, some business owners struggle with, especially these, you know, these bean counters that come directly out of these Ivy League universities. They think that the entire company is run off of a a freaking spreadsheet. And guess what? It's not. <laughs> the spreadsheet has never, under any circumstances, helped a customer with a problem. It just doesn't. It might help me with a problem so I can organize my numbers. It might help you with a problem because you don't understand where the percentage of things are going. But the customer, unless you're selling spreadsheets or a spreadsheet service to the customer, it's not doing anything for them. The thing that's going to help the customer, and there is no such thing as business unless you're solving a problem. If you're not solving a problem, you are not in business. I'm sorry to tell you. That. So in order to help solve that problem, people want other people that are going to help them get to where they want to go. You've got to pour all your resources into those people that are solving the problem. So what the, the problem that entrepreneurs have, especially when they start out at mom and pop shops, problem that I had is that they're so good. They're so technically sound at what it is that they do that they have just reflexively, naturally been solving problems for people for so long. And now they're getting to a point where they have a name and pe more people now want them to solve the problems, but you've reached your bandwidth. You've reached your bandwidth. You can no longer grow. So the problem at this point is the entrepreneur. You are preventing more people from getting their problem solved as well as you've done it. And you're preventing your company from growing. You're preventing from giving opportunities to new people to come into your company. So what does that mean? That means that we need to be able to take our level of expertise and give it to somebody else and then give them the time and the space and the authority and the psychological safety to make mistakes and to be exercise a high level of accountability on that, then build something better, then grow it forward. It's almost as if you're passing down the entrepreneurial mindset. But some people, what they try to do is they try to bring them in and then squeeze them into this box. It doesn't work like that. These Everybody operates a little bit differently. So you need to bring them in and help to accentuate 
their high skills, give them enough way to use that. You are so good at negotiating. I want to get out of your way. Instead of trying to teach you how I do it, I'm going to get out of your way, get out there and start negotiating more. But you're kind of weak on person-to-person communication. Guess what? We're going to go ahead and supplement that in order to bring all your skills up to a certain level. Then I'm going to have you, because you're so good at this, I want you to teach that person how to be better at it. And that person's really good at it. And they're going to teach you, but you have to build a community in a sense when you're building a company. If you want to be able to have a strong, goal focused, innovative company culture, you have to be able to allow people to do the high level responsibilities, but you've got to give them enough space to make a mistake and, and do something a little bit different, something outside of the box. So I don't know if that, I don't know if that answers. No, question. that does. That does answer it because the way I see it, what you're doing in your company culture is you're putting the best people in the positions based on their strengths. And then you have people who will supplement, you know, if they're struggling in some areas, you will have the team. It's a team effort. will help that person or maybe you'll step in, but you want them to utilize what they're best at. I mean, I worked in sales and I remember, you know, on some deals, I wouldn't bring my manager in some deals because I know that he might mess it up because he might talk a lot with this particular customer. I'm like, nah, he's, he wouldn't be good for this customer. Oh, this customer, he will be good with because this person likes to chat. So it's just understanding where to position people in order for them to be successful, which tells me that you really take time to get to know the people you bring into your company. So it's not like it's a surprise. It's not like, yeah, you didn't hire somebody and then you found out, oh, this person is great at negotiation. You probably knew that coming in. Sometimes you just don't know. So I hire for attitude and aptitude. It's not, I can teach you the skills. You just need to be driven enough to want to learn something that you don't currently know. So part of the interview process is what is something that you've taught yourself or that you've learned new in the last six months? Another thing is what type of information are you currently consuming? What are you listening to on podcasts? What are you reading? What's the last book that you read? Maybe you don't read books. Maybe you're more of an article person. I'm fine with that. But as long as you're digesting, you know, responsible sources of information with the concept that you want to be better today than you were yesterday, that's a huge, you can't teach somebody that. I can teach you how to work on a spreadsheet. I can send you to a class and they'll tell you how to build it out with all the bells and whistles. I can't teach you to want to be good at something, whatever that something mm-hmm. is. Yeah. So and you can see I'm that with some people. I've seen, sorry, I've seen some people who I can see a profile of, of somebody, and I hate to stereotype older people, but you'll see somebody who's in their early 50s. They've been doing the same job for, I don't know, 10 years. And you just talk to them and they're like, well, I'm just going to do this till I retire. And just, you could have a conference like, hey, what are you into? What do you, no, no, I don't read. You, no, I don't do that. And you already can form an opinion of, okay, this person, probably not somebody who's going to fit it. And I feel like that's a danger zone. If you're somebody who can't adapt to change, because that's the first thing I think, if you're in the same job for a number of years and you hit a certain age, I'm like, you obviously don't like change. No problem. But in a world that changes, that's very dangerous. What if that job goes away? Or what if technology replaces it? What do you do? You know, like, I think people's ability to adapt and change is paramount. It's not even paramount anymore. It's a necessity. The world is just going to pass you by. So if you don't go ahead and put yourself in a position where I can understand the concept of change, it's moving too quickly. So if we were talking about people that were born in the 20s and they hit their peak in the 70s, the technology, although it changed, did not change too fast to where you couldn't keep up with it. Now, it's every five years, it's we're experiencing something completely new, revolutionary, a breakthrough that's disrupting how we used to do things before. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. I mean, when I was a kid, there was no yes. such thing as video phones and instant chat and, and freaking forget about it. And that wasn't that long ago. This is all really, really new technology. So what we're looking for when we're looking for people that can fit are people that are constantly on an upward progression constantly looking to get better because if you're not looking, either you're getting better or you're getting worse. There's no middle between anymore. There's no, I can just do this job for a little while longer because guess what? At a certain point, the job is going to evolve outside of your skill set. So it's tough to be able to get that out of somebody when you're in like a 20 minute interview. But that's something that if I were to convey it to your listeners, 
that when you're in there, two things. Number one, you have to ask yourself, am I really like this? Will, will the word no stop me? See, I have a bad relationship with the word no. So if somebody tells me, no, you can't do that, what they're actually telling me is, uh, I can't wait to watch you do that, Chris, because yeah. at that point, I can't stop. I just need to do it. I need to be good at it. I need to be, you know, I need to be able to teach somebody else how to do it. <laughs> and you need to, while you're in that interview, is to be able to convey that to your potential employer, because this is not an island elevator thing. This is a global company hiring method now is understanding that the person that we're hiring today is going to have to do a marginally different job 12 months from now and again and again every 12 months. So are you willing to adapt and evolve while the entire world is adapting and evolving around us? How much is your industry changing and being affected by that? Because the average person is going to sit there and say, well, the skill trades, you know, if you're repairing an elevator, what's different? You know, how is that going to change in six months and a year from now? And I'm sure it will. I'm just saying how the average person might think. I'm not saying that, no, it's not going to, but can you explain how it's going to change? If we were talking about the skilled trades specifically, everything's becoming more computerized, more internet of things, more software driven, more technology, and it's changing so quick. Everything's getting smaller. So, yes. and you need to be able to think like the computer is thinking. And that was that programming was written by somebody else. And you need to be at least adaptable enough. So now 20, 30 years ago, we would have tons of relay logic. So there was, there was very little microprocessor controlled parts of the elevator. Now, yeah. three decades later, and then as it continues to evolve. Now the trick in the skilled trades specifically, and with elevators specifically, is that all of the equipment that's been installed over the last 40 to 50 years, much of it is still in service. So we're not just asking you to adapt with whatever the new technology is going on for today, but to be able to understand the relationship between now and 30 and 40 years ago so that you can fix the 40-year-old elevator and you can fix the 10-year-old elevator. But if you don't move on, and start to understand the new technology, then now you're pigeonholed into this antiquated equipment. And when it finally gets modernized, guess what? We don't have a position for you anymore. So when we're talking about the evolution of the skilled trades, it's about us understanding that we're not, the industry is not standing still. Another thing that drives the industry, specifically in the skilled trades, is codes. So every time they issue a new code, the equipment changes, the requirements change. And in the elevator industry, they issue a new code every three years. So every three years, there's maybe small changes or there's big changes, but there's always going to be changes. So if you're not interested in dealing with those changes, you've now put yourself in a smaller and smaller and smaller box where your ability to be useful to solve problems because that's what we're doing in business. It's not about pleasing the employer, it's about pleasing the customer. You can go to this customer's building, but you can't walk across the street and take care of that customer's elevator, then I don't know what to do with you. I need somebody that can take care of both. And it's good and it's the same with plumbing, with fire vendors, low volume high voltage, they're all dealing with the same exact thing because the person that has to deal with the fire panel in this building needs to be able to deal with the fire panel in this building. Similar devices, different device built at different times under different codes. So this one was built 10 years ago. Some of the code requirements do apply here, don't apply across the street that was built last year. So all of these things are changing, even if the technology isn't changing, a lot of it is code driven and the technology catches up. Sometimes it's the other way around. Yeah. So if you don't like learning new things, you're in trouble. If you don't like you learning don't, and solving problems, you're just not going to survive. You're, you're not going to be employed very long in your industry. And that's the trades And that goes with every industry. That's not the skilled trades. That goes with sales. The sales theory has changed over the last 10 years because the market has changed. Guess what? Gen Z is starting to get to the point where they now have disposable income. We can't sell to Gen Z the same way that we sold to millennials, the same way that we sold to Gen Xers. It's just not the same. Everything evolves because people evolve. We're talking about how to work at an office. That's evolving. 
How do you d differentiate work from home as opposed to work in the office? Leadership challenges, everything's evolving. So the more rigid that you decide that you want to be because you're just so uncomfortable with change, newsflash, buddy, miss, missus, mister, change is inevitable. And we all oh, yeah. hate, we all hate change, but there's the ones that go, you know, you can, one saying is, uh, I don't fight the, I don't fight the waves. I ride the waves. So do you want to fight the waves and stand there like a pillar, or do you want to ride the waves and take this thing where it goes? Because where it goes almost inevitably is a better place. I agree. You know, I'll tell you, and I'm sure you've experienced this. You see many people inbox you in LinkedIn with these automated messages and they, because it can, they do that quantity, but they don't know anything about you or your business. And then sometimes just for fun, if somebody's been contacting me a lot of times and like I had one woman reach out to me and say, Hey, we can get you guests for your podcast. I know you hate sales. We can find guests. I'm like, if you looked at my profile, I love sales. You didn't even take a minute. To look at my If you looked at my profile, you wouldn't make that statement. And, I, and she said, well, I noticed you have all these guests. How'd you get them? I said, I reached out to them. If you have to ask me that question, why would I hire you to do that? You can't help me. And people don't realize that the, the consumer now is a lot more savvy. Just understand who you're reaching out to. If you're reaching out to somebody who's been in sales, you should be good at sales if you're trying to sell them. If you're not, they're going to know right away. And I think a lot of people are relying too much on the tools. I love technology, but you still have to have some core skill sets. You still have to be able to observe somebody that you're reaching out to, know a little bit about them, because this person could have solved this, could have had a completely different approach. I told her, if you just looked at my profile, you'd see that I like sales, you know, and you wouldn't make that statement. All you had to do was look. And a lot of people, they want it too easy. Yeah. I get these bot things and it's just so it's lazy is what it really is. Yes, it's just it is. so <laughs> where it's like, hi, Chris, I see that you're president of Island Elevator. What does Island Elevator do? And I'm like, come on, dude. I mean, this is <laughs> generated by some sort of automated system and you don't care at all. And, but honestly, I, I, in a sense, I want to thank you for not wasting my time. You're telling me that you have no interest in my company, so I could just delete that and move on with my life. So I'm okay with that. It's kind of like what Seth Godin talks about. He's like, uh, well, why do, why do Nigerian scam emails, why are they always written so poorly? It, they have spelling errors. They have grammatical errors. They don't make any sense. They're all written very, you know, choppy. He's, and then what he says is that it's because that email wasn't meant for you. It wasn't meant for people that are articulate, that can pick it up, that can go to the next level. It's meant they want you to view that email and then delete it or put them on spam. No problem. What that email is meant for are the more gullible people, are the ones that are more inclined to believe, fall into a scam and then send them $10,000 in wire money, stuff like that. So I tend to think that maybe it's lazy, but maybe it's actually on purpose. Maybe they're actually pinging so many people and they understand that the legitimate business owner, the legitimate person who's owning this social media feed is going to ignore that, but they're not actually looking for me and you. They're looking for somebody else. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I find like I'll respond back to people who contact me multiple times. And if it's not a bot, then like, so this particular person had contacted me multiple times and I'll respond back with the video because it's quicker. I'll just say, Hey, record. Hey, da, 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 da. And I'll tell them why, you know, why I'm rejecting you because I said, look, I admire that you contacted me multiple times. So I got to shut it down sometimes, you know, but I'll do it quick with the video and just say, Hey, you know, you made mention the sales because, you know, I, I, to me, I look at it as a, as an educational moment, because I admired that person's persistence. And I see if they're young and they're not as experienced, hey, next time, here's why, right? Because I do think that, you know, I don't like to, if you're persistent, I want to somewhat reward it, I guess. I admire people who are persistent because I've been on the other side. I'll tell you, I, I got a clever message the other day and I was kind of impressed with it because I had responded to it before I realized that I wasn't supposed to respond to it. This person reached out to me on LinkedIn with a DM and they said, because my office is based out of Bohemia, New York, I'm going to be in Bohemia in the next couple of weeks and I have to meet up with a couple of clients and we're looking for a decent restaurant that we can go to. Can you make any recommendations? So this person 
by leaning in, they actually got me to stop what I was doing, read their message, think of something and help them solve their problem. By the time I got done typing and hit enter, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Now I know that this guy's going to hit me up again and ask me to come, you know, like hang out and do a face-to-face -face or whatever. And he did. It was probably like an hour later. But I just thought that it was such a creative first to get somebody to think and help, you know, put me in a position as the prospect to help them, the salesman, solve some sort of fictional problem. It was really creative. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. I do admire people who are creative. If they're creative and they do something like that, I probably would have responded to. I like creative people and people who are persistent, you know, because I've, that's what I've had to do to kind of survive. Yeah, I got an, another thing that I find interesting, you know, and I always try and think future self. Imagine you had an opportunity to meet Chris in 2032. What do you think you'd ask him? You know, to get information to help you about preparing for the future. So you meet yourself in 10 years from now, what would you ask yourself to help prepare yourself for the future? Because I believe that, that that's a game changer in terms of helping you to get to where you want to get to. I always feel that. What am I asking 10-year-old Chris? No, 10 years ahead of you. So 10 years ahead of me. Yeah, yeah. 10-year-older Chris, 54-year-old Chris. I'm probably going to ask him if he can sleep through the night without peeing four times <laughs> because that would be awesome. And then I'm probably going to try to find out if the Mets win the World Series. But nice. if we were talking like more business and directional, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I don't know that I've ever thought about a future Chris. I always think about past Chris, like 22-year-old Chris, and what I could tell him in order to help prepare him for the future. I think that probably I would ask future Chris, I'd probably looking for some like real genuine, honest feedback. Like, did I make the right decision by, you know, ignoring, you know, this opportunity and deciding to stay where I was? Did I, what are the mistakes I made? I don't know. I'd be really focused on mistakes. I'm, I have a very engineering mindset. So what I see things as being either black and white binary a lot of times, and I see a lot of, you know, pass and fail, although the world lives in the gray area, I like to be able to understand, did I hit that metric? And if not, what could I have done a little bit better? I, I'm constantly polling people to give me some feedback because especially when you kind of work your way up into the organization, you get stuck in your bubble. I think of uh, Malcolm Gladwell, and he was he was quoting somebody else when he said that to a worm in a horseradish, the whole world is a horseradish. So you don't really, if you get stuck into your own world, you don't realize that everything is happening outside there. Mm -hmm. So I think that probably, you know, I don't want to be too narrow-minded. So I, if I was looking at Chris 10 years from now, I would probably want to find out what are the things that I should be utilizing, the pivot points, the, the hitch points, the climbs to get out of my, my bubble? Because I don't know. It'd be very, it, it's an interesting question. I never really thought about that. Yeah. I think, about, I, always feel uh, I think about Gary Vee when he says that you have to be willing to put yourself out of business before your business puts you out of business. And I've actually done something like that recently, and I found myself going, it's a good thing that we did that because otherwise we would have gotten washed away by trying to stay where we thought that we were the most comfortable. So I guess I take risks sometimes. You're finding your blind spot on that too. That's where you found your blind spot. You found out your vulnerability by doing what you just did, what Gary Vee was suggesting. Yeah, I, well... I identified a vulnerability Yes. I early on and I said, okay, this is something that can hurt us. So now we need to start to transition away from it before it hurts us. But the time that we're going to use to transition, that's going to be painful too. So to be able to team build around the fact that I see a threat that nobody else can see. And to tell everybody on the team that we're now going to pivot our business plan and it's going to hurt along the way, it's hard to get buy-in on that because I got everybody looking at me going, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see what you're talking about. And I feel like you're going to destroy the entire company. Fortunately, I did not destroy the entire company. I was not, you know, and we, we experienced that pain and now we're kind of feeling it. And unfortunately, it's one of those things where if you team build properly, 
you can make certain outrageous, to them it seems outrageous, to me it seems very logical, but you can make these outrageous claims and they will go with you because they trust you. And then it's incumbent upon you not to, not to fail them. So there's like this constant cycle of accountability that I always want to make myself and hold myself accountable to the people that I asked to join this team, to believe in what I was doing, to adopt those beliefs and, and the sense of urgency and the sense of community and push that whole thing forward because I can't do it without them, right? I've got like these big dreams, but I can't accomplish anything of substance. I can't accomplish anything notable, anything consequential, unless I have people that believe in me, the people that are willing to help me. And in order for them to help me, I have to give them something in return. And guess what? A fucking paycheck ain't enough. You have to give them everything. If you want them to give you everything, you have to give them everything that you have. That's the only way that it reciprocates. It's the only way that it works. Again, I don't know if I answered your question. I'm sorry about that. No, you did. You did. Definitely. I got another thing I'm kind of curious about because I know you're a fourth generation. Will there be a fifth generation? Uh, my brother is also fourth generation. He's got two kids, two sons. We talk about it occasionally about whether or not these, because it takes a little bit of a personality, a little bit of, you gotta have a little bit of thick skin. There's, and they're young. They're like eight and six. So you, you never really know. I don't have any kids, but I've got nieces and nephews. I love being Uncle Chris. And uh, I, I, I can see that there would definitely be, listen, the elevators aren't going anywhere. So somebody's going to have to do it. Why not them? You know? So, but on the same note, if they want to, if they want to play, you know, jazz piano and travel Europe, I'm happy for them because you only get one life. So do something that makes you feel good. That gives you a sense of purpose. This for me, I'm fortunate that I'm doing something that makes me feel good. That gives me a sense of purpose. Uh, that's able to kind of provide that conduit for my why. And I've seen people that get into the skilled trades that just don't, they're not like, the head's not there where they don't want to be like awesome at it. And they don't want to have to overcome all of the, the struggles that it takes to get from zero to great. And those people just don't belong in the skilled trades. You have to be self-driven. You have to be self-motivated. You have to be independently responsible. And if my nieces and nephews are a little flaky, I would tell them this, there's a lot of good things for you out there, but this might not be the best thing for you. Yeah. And I like the fact that nowadays we understand we don't push our kids to do something that doesn't fit them. The older generation used to do that. No, you have to do this because of this. You have to go to college. I think at least if you're a good parent, you're going to push your kid to where their gifts and their strengths are because of you know, like you said, you have one life. It's it's going to be disastrous if you don't. They're just not. And they're going to resent you too. <laughs> I would say that it's important to push your kid out of their comfort zone because sometimes yeah. they don't know how good they could be because they, they want to stay very close to what they already know that they are good at. So I would definitely encourage parents to push their kids out of the comfort zone, try to get their face away from that device a little bit. It's going to make them more attentive. It's going to make them more resilient by the time they get to me, the employer, mm-hmm. right? If your kid is only good at one thing because you only let them do the one thing they were good at, that that leaves that puts a lot of pressure on the employer to do a heavy amount of training, a heavy amount of basically what is parenting by proxy in order to teach your children how to responsibly operate inside of a team like this inside a professional environment, I can't tell you, we've had some people that came through that they just not prepared for understanding that this is big boy work now. So what I would say is that, but long-term that yes, you only get one life, try, taste, do lots of different things, be concerted, be diligent, push yourself to be great at it. And then, but don't make big long-term decisions like career decisions or life decisions like who you're going to marry, which is probably the second greatest decision that you're going to make. You want to make sure that you're, yeah, and that you're doing, oh, yeah. you're doing your due diligence and and be fair to yourself and be fair to the people that you're going to now insert yourself to. If your heart's not in it, then just move on. 
Yeah. I also believe the, the amazing thing I think we have today, for especially for young people, is there's so much information out there that they can learn about things before they even go into it. They can, like you said, Gary Vee says this, he says, taste different things, taste different things, try them out, especially when you're young, because you can always change course. That's another thing people don't realize. I, I, I've told young people this, you could start the profession and you can change. You can change. It's okay to change careers. You just because you start there, and that takes a lot of pressure off them making a decision because what happens, some people get uh, paralysis by analysis. Oh, I can't decide on the perfect job. So what? Try something. See what it's like. You don't like it. Move on to the next job. You don't like that. Move on to the next job. Yeah, I, you know, people are now, young people are going to have seven different careers on average. I think I, I read that somewhere that they're going to have like seven different careers, the young people right now who are in like school. The problem with having seven different careers is that you haven't given yourself an opportunity to get really good at anything. As soon, this is the problem. Young people, some young people, not all young people, because let's be honest, some of them are out there just crushing it right now. But yeah. there's a population in them that are not good at dealing with adversity. So there's a difference between trying this career and trying that career, but trying, like really trying, as opposed to dipping your feet in the water encountering some sort of obstacle and then running away from it. I agree. I agree. That makes sense when you put it that way. And what I mean by seven different careers is through a lifetime because the market changes and they're saying what the market looks like today is going to be completely different by the time they retire. So they're going to be forced to have to take to do different careers, no matter where they start, just because you could start in a job and that industry could go away or it could evolve into a different career. So that's kind of what I mean by the seven. But what you're saying makes sense. You can't just dip out of a job just because now it gets hard. I, I agree with you on that. And some people are doing that. And it's just uh, unfortunate. But it starts with the parenting. You're right. You're right. Because I have kids who play sports and I tell them when they sign up, I have a 14 and 12 year old. I said, when we sign up at the beginning of the season, I cut that check. You're, you're on that team till the end of the season, no matter what. You've made that commitment, you know, and I don't care if the ref's bad or the coach is whatever it is, the coach is bad, you're going to have to figure out a way to deal with it. But there are parents who bail their kids out sometimes, you know, or it gets tough and they say, well, you don't have to move on to the next level. You'll reclass and play with kids younger than you, you know, and I'm like, yeah. And it all comes from a good place because the parents, they're not bad people. They're just trying, they're doing what they feel is in their power in order to be able to protect their children, which is your natural biological response. When you see some, your child is in pain, you want to, you want to protect them. You want to, you want to swallow them. You want to be able to bring them out of that. You want to be able to help them get to success. But what happens is that at a certain point, if you don't allow them to sit in that, in that adversity and to think of it, get themselves out of it on their own, and to not micromanage your child's growth, which is essentially what you're doing. If you don't allow them to be uncomfortable, then they're at a certain point, you're not going to be around, and they're not going to know how to deal with it. So it's just, but it all comes from a good place. It's not like they're bad parents. They're just, they are just so, you know, engaged in everything that's going on that at a certain point, it's hard to step back because parents are in a leadership role. And the same thing happens to people in business. You know, you're in a leadership role. And a lot of the things that you end up, one of the things that you end up having to overcome while you're growing is to realize that you should not be touching everything, that you can't protect your people from every failure. You can't prevent every failure, that you actually have to let them go out, fail, come back. Let's debrief the whole thing. Or... You don't know how to do it. Instead of me jumping in and giving you hand-to-hand -hand training on that, why don't you challenge yourself a little and figure out how to do it on your own? So, but that's it's a similar parenting style, and it's and it's hard. It's really hard because you don't want to see your family fail, and I don't want to see my business fail. But I have to be able to trust in people and then leave them alone in order for the business to be successful. It's it's a weird paradox. Definitely, definitely. Hey, Chris, final question. Can you share what success looks like for you in the future, uh, for you and Island Elevator? What's your vision for the future and what does success look like for you? Success. Uh, success for Island Elevator is that we become a more dominant force in the elevator industry on the Long Island region, that we 
are able to grow the company and bring more people in and bring more opportunity. I would like to be able to sit down with my finance department and have serious discussions about turning this into an employee-owned company. I want everybody to have ownership of Island Elevator Success, and I want everybody to be completely on the same page, looking out for each other and delivering customer solutions without the customer having to jump through hoops in order to be able to get their problem solved to be able to build independent, innovative, free-thinking teams that people don't have to touch. They automatically coalesce with each other and they're able to identify problems, small problems before they become big problems and knock them out of the sky, whether it's for the company, whether it's for uh, the community, whether it's for the customer. We wanna be able to bring, I wanna be able to have the way that I look at it is that I want everybody to be a leader in this company, top to down, whether you're me or the, you know, another president or all the way down to the, the greenest helper. Everybody should see themselves as a leader. Everybody should see themselves as going out there and trying to deliver and live a life of service to either your, your fellow team members or to the customer. So what I see success is more of that, more of it being manifested, more, I, you know, I hope that 10 years from now, somebody completely copies what we do. The idea is that I want us to have an idea and a theory and to put it into practice and to have somebody else turn around and say, that's great. I'm going to do whatever they do. And then they have that. And then it becomes almost a virus. We're no longer the shining light on the cliff of people over profit, people centered uh, decision-making, people-first company. I want everybody to be like that. I want them to see that we can be successful and I want them to make it force us into a different, higher level of conversation because now we don't need to worry about telling people, hey, listen, you can come over to Island Elevator because we're going to treat you like an adult. We're going to support you and your career development and we're going to solve problems and help people all at the same time. That's great. And that's what's our differentiating factor right now. However, I see a world where people can't tell the difference because now everybody's doing the right thing because now other people are coming out and starting their companies and it's under a, a people first mentality. And next thing you know, people actually have like a higher level of fulfillment, not just in the elevator industry, but in other industries have a higher level of fulfillment at their work and they're happy at work and they're happy when they go home because that's what we're developing right now. I can't tell you how many people come into this company and they're like, I used to go home and I was upset or I was crying or I was not nice to my wife or whatever these things were. And now my family at home can feel the impact of me working at Island Elevator. My life is better, not just my job. So I want to be able to try to bring that idea, that concept, and let people know that this works. It's good. It'll help you. It'll help your people. It'll help to your legacy. It will help to drive forward a communal concept, service, that we're actually out here together. We're not against each other. So it's that, that's what I would, in the future, big picture, I know that that's like 50,000 feet. Not really... I don't really think of things too much in metrics too much. No, I get it. Big, big picture, big vision. Chris, please share how people can find you. Uh, you just Google my name. If you can't figure it out, then you probably weren't meant to find me in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. We'll have Chris's information in the notes. And um, they're very prominent on on social media. And if he's right. If you have some savvy of the internet, you'll be able to find them. Chris, I am so grateful for this time that, you know, it's Saturday. So I appreciate you taking time on the weekend to do this interview. I appreciate you too. Hey, hey, this was fun. We're going we're gonna to collaborate again for sure. Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. And I wish you nothing but continued success with your business. And uh, hopefully we'll see a fifth generation in the elevator industry for your family. Absolutely. Definitely. Thank you for listening to Skill Stadium. It would mean so much if you left a review on iTunes and told your family and friends about the podcast.